Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We'll soon be announcing our 2023 festival program, so make sure you receive the announcement by signing up to our e-newsletters at swf.org.au forward slash subscribe. Until then, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Have you got Good afternoon, everyone. There's still a few people wandering into this sold-out <laughs> session, uh, but we're going to get started. I'm Susan Windham. I'm a journalist, a book reviewer, and for the purposes of this session, a former literary editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to this conversation with two outstanding Australian authors who are clearly very beloved by their readers, Jennifer Down and Hannah Kent, who have written very different but equally powerful novels about women a century apart, brave outsiders who resist the constraints of their societies. I love both these novels. I'm sort of so enriched by <laughs> all this material and characters. But first, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians and storytellers of this land we're meeting on, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Now, Hannah Kent blasted into the book scene in 2013 with her first novel, Burial Rites, about a woman condemned to death for murder in Iceland in 1829. She has continued her historical interest in women's lives with The Good People, set in Ireland in 1825, and now she brings us another Hannah Kent classic, Devotion, a dramatic and beautiful and compassionate novel about a girl raised in a strict Lutheran community in Prussia and brought to South Australia in 1838. Jennifer Down, by contrast, is highly acclaimed and admired for her gritty, observant, and equally compassionate contemporary stories, often about young people, often troubled and on the margins of society, in her three books of fiction, the 2017 novel, Our Magic Hour, a collection of short stories, Pulse Points, and her moving new novel, Bodies of Light, which follows the life of Maggie, an orphan girl raised in a series of foster homes and institutions. I'm delighted to mention that among their many prizes and shortlistings, both writers have received an award that I started, the Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Australian Novelists, Hannah in 2014 and Jennifer twice in 2016 and 2018. And of course, they've moved far beyond being young <laughs> and beginner writers now, but I'm very proud of that. Now, Devotion and Bodies of Light are your third books, though technically your second novel, Jennifer. We often hear about the difficulty of the second novel after the first one pours out. What about the third? Does it become easier or are there new challenges? I think um, this was certainly a very difficult book for me to write, but I'm not sure how much of it is to do with the kind of the, the second novel or the third book, but, um, but it, to do with um, the research, the subject matter was really heavy to sit with. Um, and it, I was also, we were just talking about work before we started. I was working in an unrelated nine to five job or, you know, eight to seven job. And so um, you come home from, from you know, 
doing that and sitting at a computer screen, and that's the time that you have to, to write, you know, is, is um, in evenings or on weekends. Um, and certainly, like, I'm very lucky that I have that time to write. You know, I, I'm not, um, I, I don't have, you know, children to care for or whatever. I, I can kind of be selfish and devote myself in those moments. But it also means that all of your leisure time is filled with um, reading and researching about quite distressing things. And I think what I found, I, I don't think it was, it was to do with um, the, the kind of ordinal number of this being the second or third mm. book, but more to do with... Um, a steep learning curve that was, you know, your leisure time cannot be leisure time, writing time, the time that you spend outside of work, the time that you should be spending with, you know, um, loved ones or cooking or, or just watching something stupid on telly. Um, you need a bit of that as well as whatever research you're doing, particularly if the research is um, distressing or heavy. And so I think that was, yeah. that was a, a, a steep learning curve. And possibly contributed to this taking quite a long time to write as well. Does this mean your books haven't made you rich? <laughs> Still working? Still working. Um, yeah. What is your job while we're talking about that? Is it a, is it relate, a, a writing job? A yeah, so I work as um, a copywriter and until about this time last year I worked in-house and I, I decided to freelance about this time last year, which was... Like I've never been in the, in the position of being able to work for myself, so that was a real luxury, you know, kind of getting to choose your own hours. Um, but, yeah, still definitely doing an eight to seven, yeah. What I think starts to emerge with a third book is we can see you um, as a certain kind of writer, even though your writing might change from book to book. You have certain interests and concerns. Do you feel you understand yourself as a writer and what you want to do as a writer? Oof, Susan, that's like between me and my therapist and God. Um, <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to lock you into anything. <laughs> but uh, just, you know, there is a kind of shape to your work. Yeah, totally. Well, I think, I think um, who was it? Was it, sorry, now I'm showing my ignorance. There's some, there was some writer, like it wasn't Joyce Carol Oates, but that name is in my head for some reason, who said we only really have one book inside us and we're just telling the same story different ways yep. over time. Somebody in question time is going to tell me who it is and be like, it was Eileen Miles or someone completely different. Um, but yeah, I think like, I'm just always going to be interested in, you know, you spoke about how Hannah has this kind of enduring fascination for women's lives in, uh, at various points in history and, and kind of mapped over different geographic areas. And I think my preoccupations are not so different. It's kind of gender, geography and class, but perhaps in a more contemporary setting. Mm. And I don't, I don't know, I, maybe that makes me boring, but I don't think I'll ever get tired of reading. I mean, I love reading those stories as mm. well. So it's, um, I don't know, it's easy for me to kind of fall into rabbit holes. What, what about you? Yeah, look, I think in some ways I feel like every book is the first book because as much as I like to pretend otherwise, I feel that whenever I start out on a new project, you know, new characters new things that I think I'm exploring, which readers then point out are exactly the same as in my previous books. But, you know, every book needs its... You need to find its... Um, every book has its own way of writing it. It requires its own methodology, its own approach. And so I feel very much that I've just written three debut novels. Um, <laughs> but I think also, you know, uh, with, with Devotion, I was... You know, with Burial Rights, I, I wrote that book n not expecting publication. So, in some ways, it was the most freeing process because I was writing it predominantly, yes, for a university examination, but also predominantly just for myself and my own curiosity. 
And then with the good people, I did have, uh, you know, that whole second album syndrome thing sort of thrust upon me. Lots of people would say, well, second book, can you follow it up? Can you do it? And it was, it was kind of crushing for a period of about six months. I was paralysed. And then, but I was very aware of it being a follow-up book. I think when it came to devotion, I just wanted to write for myself again. So I think so much of it was me thinking, I want to write the book that I want to read and I want to do as much work as I can to to separate myself from the white noise of of publication. And perhaps that is a privilege and a luxury to be able to do that. But I wanted to instead think of, okay, third book, and now I get to I get to write for an audience of one, which is, which is myself mm. and perhaps my, my partner as well. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think it's, um, I don't know, it feels weird to sort of number them in that way. I feel that in many ways I'm still just writing the same one novel. Like you say, you, you, you do realise that you're covering the same themes, probably because the same questions which lead you to write them are never really answered through the process of, of writing. You just come up with more questions which just send you deeper down the same rabbit hole. Did you know you were going to be interested in the past, women from the past? Did you set out on that path? Or no, goodness this no. kept happening to you? No, you know, I studied creative writing at university and I really wanted to be initially a poet. I'm glad we didn't go down that way. Not because I don't like poetry. I love poetry just because yeah, I'm not good that, at it. Walk that back. <laughs> just because I'm a terrible poet. But, um, and then for many years I wanted to, to be a playwright. And then I was interested in, in contemporary fiction. But it was more just the fact that I became obsessed with this person from the historical past. And the historical context initially was completely secondary. This is Agnes Magnus Dottier, the, the character in Burial Rights. And then um, it was through the process of trying to find out more about her and her life that I fell in love with the research process. Mm. And I realised that research can be a, an incredible creative resource and can really direct the course of a novel. And I, yeah, I just, I so enjoyed that process that it naturally kind of led me to continue it. But I still, to this day, don't necessarily consider myself a historical novelist. One, I think, because the concerns that I feel I have or am exploring in my books are contemporary still. And secondly, because I don't necessarily think I will continue to always write it. I would love to branch out in other genres and try other things. Mm. But I mean, and, and to a certain extent, devotion is a step sideways from what I'd previously been doing, a conscious step sideways where, you know, you're always trying to maybe challenge yourself with creative risks um, with, from book to book and to, you know, in the process of discovering those various new methodologies. And just on a practical level, I think your writing circumstances have changed a bit with this book because you're now married with two children, yes. two young children. That's how, true. How has that changed your, your writing? Oh, you know, I used to be so fussy. I was like one of those people who liked to write a certain amount every day and, and, you know, rock up at the same hour and have this very strict routine. And now I'm, you know, trying to get into the 19th century with, like, bluey blaring through the wall. <laughs> um, so, and you just write when you can, whether that's 11 o'clock at night or, you know, first thing in the morning or when they're having a nap and stuff like that. So I think I've become a, a much more flexible writer. That's probably been one of the Did biggest things Did it take longer because of that? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This book took five years, yeah. you know, but a year for each kid, so. But then you gave <laughs> up your editing work from Kill Your Darlings at a certain point, so. I did too. Yeah. But at the same time, I've taken on, I've been very fortunate to receive the opportunity to write for screen, so I've been really enjoying that process mm. as well. Mm. Good. Yeah. Um, well, even though these are fresh ideas, it seems to me in some way 
both your books reach back into knowledge from your childhood, you know, knowledge you grew up with. Um, Jennifer, your parents both sort of worked in welfare and social work, and I just wondered how, what you absorbed from that, and, you know, has it stayed with you? Has that emerged in this novel in some way? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I Can feel you like tell it... me about their work a little bit and, and yeah. what you knew of it? Yeah, so my dad is a school teacher and he worked um, when I was growing up for, for 30 years, I think, as a, a welfare coordinator in a school where there is a, um, was and is a high population of at-risk children um, and, you know, a lot of homelessness, a lot of substance abuse issues, um, a lot of instability for these children. Um, almost adults, he, so he worked with 17 and 18-year-olds who were just, you know, um, getting, getting through their BCE or HSC. Um, and mum was a social worker who, when I was growing up, she was a protective worker and worked um, with um, what was called then the high-risk infant program, so um, unborn through to two years old. And um, I think they both uh, had very different ways of approaching their jobs and of talking about their jobs. But, um, you know, certainly with any work like that, or with any work in general, you know, there's a bit of compartmentalisation that goes on, but it also was a big part of our, like, dinner time discussion, um, or every day. And I think they didn't treat me as an adult, but they also... Um, they treated me as an equal. And so I'm sure that there were things that they, they didn't say. But our, our, like, dinner time conversations were all... You know, if, if their work came up, they weren't kind of sanitising it or anything like that. And so I think um, that probably had had a big impact in the sense that um, I was always very cared for and very supported and I never wanted for anything in terms of affection or, you know, I, I, always, I was always very secure in my attachments, but I also knew that not everybody experienced life that way um, and that certainly there were, there were many people my age living a very different life. Um, and I think that probably, I mean, I'm kind of like the black sheep in my family and group of friends in the sense that, like, my sister is a psych nurse, my other sister is studying to be a clinical psychologist. Um, most of my friends work in, you know, at community legal centres or and nurses or paramedics. And I don't know if it's true what they say about water finding its own level or whatever, but I, I do feel like I'm surrounded by people in these, in these occupations that are kind of community or welfare focused. Um, and so I often, I mean, this is an aside, but I, I feel like what I do is quite useless, you know, in comparison. It's a very aesthetic, you know, thing to, to write. Um, but it's also really important to, to know to know how other people live when they're not as fortunate as you or they've had different experiences. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that, that it, both childhood but even today, hearing, you know, stories from friends who work with marginalised populations, it's, um, I don't know, it informs everything I do, it informs the choices I make, it informs how I vote, it informs, you know, what I write about and what I care about and, um, you know, new relationships or friendships that I make that are kind of, you know, non-negotiables, I, I, which I don't, I don't like to think of them like that. But, um, yeah, I think it, it truly informs everything I do. In, that includes fiction. Interesting. Thank you. Hannah, um, you grew up in South Australia 
And I think you're the descendant of Lutheran migrants, immigrants. Can you tell me what you knew about that and, and how much it um, was part of your life, that history? Yeah. And religion, if it was. I did. I grew up on Paramount Country, where I have the very great fortune of, of living now today. Um, and it was interesting because I was always vaguely aware that through my grandmother's side, um, I was related to these old Lutherans who emigrated from Prussia in the sort of the mid-19th century to the colony of South Australia, um, largely because of persecution or initially because of persecution based on their faith. They refused to subscribe to the Union Church um, dictated to the Prussian population by um, King Frederick William III. Um, and I, I kind of knew through my grandmother about this, but really only through the inheritance of a kind of, of foodways and, and, and viticulture and these things which were so much part of, of my childhood. I wasn't ever very interested, though, as I think many people, especially the, perhaps when you're younger, are in, in that aspect of family history. And I think that those elements only really came through once I'd already decided to write about these com communities. It wasn't ever something that I thought, oh, I'm so interested in this because of my own relationship to it, that's why I want to write it. The reason why I ended up writing about these communities was actually had much more to do with the landscape of the place that I grew up in. Mm. Um, you know, my previous two books, it's interesting, we're talking about sort of the progression. One of the differences between this book and my earlier ones is that those books were very much started with a character at the heart of them, you know, a real-life historical person who I wanted to learn about in order to understand their worldview and discover something of their humanity and perhaps subvert what could be a misrepresentation of them in the records. With this book, it didn't start with any sort of historical character. I just wanted to... I had returned home to, to the Adelaide Hills after living in Melbourne for many years and I was struck anew by the beauty of this place and it brought back a lot of very intense memories of myself interacting with the natural world as a child and I wanted to write something that was kind of a tribute to this beauty and to that sense of awe and wonder that it instilled in me from a very young age. So that really was more the connection to place. But as I decided to sort of write about, write about um, Paramount Country, write about these little townships, I became hugely fascinated in the ways in which certain aspects of Germanic culture have been carried through within this area and the ways in which they in turn have influenced my own life and, and my family's life. But it was all, that was all secondary. I think predominantly the, the, most, the, the greatest part of myself in this book or the interest was in the way in which I was shaped by this incredible landscape. Mm. Well, you do call your character Hannah. <laughs> yeah, that was a mistake. That's come up a lot in sessions. I wish I could Does stick to it. Does that mean there's something of you in her? Oh, you know, it's so funny. I think, I think this book is my most personal one for myriad reasons. And I think, you know, Hannah is a character who is, considers herself very much an outsider. Within. She's, she's initially, she's a, a young girl on the cusp of sort of womanhood in a small village in Prussia. She, uh, she feels like she's a misfit. She doesn't... She describes at one point that she doesn't know how to be. It seems to come very easily to her peers within the village. And I think that's certainly something that I felt when I was young. I felt mm. very much like an outsider and a bit of a, a misfit. And I think that, you know, uh, there is probably a lot of those feelings and anxieties, not necessarily that I still have today, but that I felt at that age that have gone into that character. She wasn't always Hannah. She was initially called by a different name and then I had to change it because that name was anachronistic. And then I, uh, I ended up calling her Hannah thinking 
I must change this before I send it to my agent. <laughs> it's going to bring up a lot of stuff. But in the end, it just seemed to suit her so well. And perhaps for good reason. Perhaps there is more of me in her than I would care to admit. Would you give us just that little reading about her? Please? Yes, certainly. I was forever nature's child. It is probably best to say this now. I sought out solitude. Happiness was playing in the whir of grass at the uncultivated edges of our village, listening to the ticking of insects or plunging my feet into fresh snow until my stockings grew wet and my toes numb. Occasionally, in a spirit of contrition after some misdemeanor and knowing it would please my mother, I would run in the road with the children of the other old Lutherans. There had been some fun in throwing stones and hanging upside down in trees with the boys, but my brother's friends did not enjoy being beaten in their races by a long-legged girl, and their sisters had always confounded me. Even as a young child, I had felt that girls forsook on whim and offered only inconstant friendship. Allegiances seemed to shift from day to day like sandbanks in a riverbed, and inevitably I found myself run aground. Better to befriend a blanket of moss, the slip quick of fish dart. Never was the love I poured into the river refused. But I was no longer a child with a child's freedoms. Common chores and the expectations of the congregation had thrust me back into the company of girls I had known my whole life, but whom I did not understand for all I recognized their faces. Christiana, Henrietta and Elizabeth all seemed to accept and perform their early womanhood with an ease that rendered me fiercely jealous. Their bodies were soft like mine, but they seemed contained where I was long-boned and sprawling. They were small and neat, and their faces had shed childish plumpness and become youthful simulacra of their mothers. I had mama's name only. I did not even have the good fortune of resembling papa, although I alone received his height, which amused him. Christiana, Henrietta and Elizabeth knew what to say at which occasion, how to make everyone laugh or smile, how to please their parents and themselves. They came together in a dance that I did not know the steps to. I was separate even when in their midst. On the few occasions, I had revealed something of my true self, seeking communion or recognition. I had been met with wide-eyed confusion or outright scorn. My interests were not theirs. Another girl my age in the village would yet be one more reminder that I was ill-made. How do they know how to be? I remember wondering as I ripped feathers that night. How does anyone know how to be? Thank you. Thank you. Your novel has, just to continue with you for a moment, your novel has some harrowing, harrowing events and, and experiences. But what always strikes me about your writing is how beautifully you write about ecstasy and awe, whether it's about the natural world or about sexual, sensual experience um, and religious experience too. All of them hard things to put into words. How do you get into that, that, I mean, how do you express those things and how do you get your mind into that sort of poetic and, and very beautiful mode? <laughs> oh, that, thank you, first and foremost. That's very generous of you to say so. I am... Um, I think one of the reasons I love writing so much is because I find it difficult. I, I really love its difficulty because there, I find it incredibly challenging to take something which is ephemeral or which seems to exist beyond the boundaries of language and try to 
pin it to the page or distill it in a way that will be familiar to a reader whilst also making it unfamiliar enough to be memorable. That to me is what gives me the greatest pleasure because when you finally do feel like you've come close to articulating that, there is such satisfaction. Um, so that's actually my favourite part of the writing process and probably why I tend towards those sorts of themes or those emotional experiences because I find them actually quite tricky, tricky mm. to approach. Um, but I think too that there's so much satisfaction and fulfilment as a writer to be able to articulate something which is on the page so specific to character and even to within a historical context, you know, it's bound by time and or ideology or circumstance, but yet a contemporary reader in a completely different situation will recognise something of the universe, you know, the, the universality of that emotional experience, you know, that sense of war, awe or wonder or, or desperation or whatever it may be. And I think that that is so powerful in literature. And one of the, you know, I, I'm here talking as a writer, but really most of the time I relate to myself as a reader. Mm. And that's what I have always loved about reading is encountering these stories which are so different, you know, from my life. They are so beyond the narrow parameters of my own existence. And yet I can project myself into that place because I recognise that same feeling. And it makes you feel like you belong and it makes you feel like you're not alone. And that is the greatest gift I think you can receive as a reader. So as a writer, if you can attempt something similar, it's again that feeling that you are offering an opportunity for communion. Mm. Um, and that's, that's probably <laughs> as much as I can say about it. But, um, Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. Jennifer, um, you tell the life of your character, Maggie, over about, I think it's about 40 years, is that right? 1975, up, almost up to the present. Yeah. Uh, my maths isn't very good, but it's a, a large part of her life. Uh, she is so real on the page, and um, I wondered why you decided to follow her for that long. Um, but perhaps first, would you read us a, a passage yeah. about her very <laughs> different childhood? Yes. From possibly Hannah's. around the same. Uh, I think Maggie is possibly a bit younger in this than than Hannah is. But, right. Um... <clears throat> Southern Aurora Hotel, Dandenong, 1978. Dad called the Southern Aurora the pig pen. The three Fs, he'd say: Fosters, flogs, and fights. It was right by the railway station. They knew us there even before we moved in, for six months or so, to one of the motel rooms behind the pub. On weekday afternoons, I'd sit up at the bar next to Dad, him with his beer sweating into its plastic glass and me with a pink lemonade. If it was quiet, I was allowed to play at the pool table by myself. I was barely tall enough to see over its edge and much too small to hold a cue. I knew my bigs from my smalls, but that was it. I made up my own games, rolling the billiards like bowls. I arranged them in the triangle and pushed it across the felt. I liked the gentle clicking sound the bright globes made. Or I'd rub the little block of billiard chalk on my face and pretend to be a wild animal. The carpet was tacky underfoot, every surface reeked of old beer and smoke. Jugs were cheap. They had a $1.50 supper ticket, we knew the barmaids and the bouncers. They called me Little Lady. Evenings were rowdier, and on Thursday and Friday nights, Dad would take me back to our room, tuck me in, and return to the pub. 
Not a good place for a little girl, he'd say. I always felt I was missing out on something seductively adult. Once or twice I went back in my pajamas, barefoot, and the bouncer took me to the bar staff and they found Dad. I don't remember seeing anything really terrible there. A nudie film on the big screen, a window busted in a brawl, a lot of drunken spewing. Plenty of fights. The pig pen was the first place I saw violence. Blood and teeth sprayed from the doorway, faces mashed against car hoods, crack of bone on asphalt. The building was fronted by a sloping stretch of concrete, almost like a veranda, with stairs leading from the club to the car park at one end. More than once, I saw a bouncer throw a bloke straight over the veranda railing. Of course, I was a child then, and the world was big to me, but I'm sure it was a story high. Thank you. At that point, Maggie's mother has died and her father's with her, but not for much longer. Um, what a setup for a life, and she treats all this as normal. Um, is, I mean, she goes on to a series of foster homes and institutions, different kinds of institutional living. I wondered if you felt that the trajectory of her life was somehow inevitable, or did you have to make dozens and dozens of little decisions about where she goes, if it's up or down? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I mean, that's kind of the central question, or one of the central questions maybe of the novel is, is uh, <clears throat> how much of any of this is kind of inevitable or... Um, it, because I think certainly, you know... Um, you know, do I think that um, because you had X experience as a child, you will go on to experience substance abuse issues? No, I don't. I don't think it's like an immutable thing, right? But we do know, research shows us, as well as plenty of anecdotal evidence, that, um, you know, being put in X situation as a child, whether that's, um, you know, rough sleeping or um, uh, family violence or substances being used within your own house, there are all of these things that can put you at greater risk or increase the likelihood of you having YZ experience as an adult or later in life. And so I don't think, you know, it's, it's correlation, not causation. So I, I don't know, in answer to your question, I think um, that was a, a big question or a big uh, decision that I, I made. You know, I wanted to create a character who has a lot of autonomy um, and certainly makes her own decisions, but often she's making decisions within, um, you know, a, a framework that's not of her choosing and um, within the limits of, of very difficult circumstances. And so, yeah, of course, there, you know, there are, there are millions of little authorial choices and some of that, you know, if I was going to be cynical, I would say some of that is down to structure. You know, if you've had a really rough 20 pages you might want to give the reader a break. Yeah. But I don't, it's, it's not as mercenary as when I'm writing. Maybe, I think maybe the editing process is when you start to think like that. But when I'm writing, it's much more um, intuitive. And I mean, it, it was also, like, it's, you know, it's a, it's a sad book, but I also, it all felt really important to me to honour the, the good parts of, of her life as well as a character. And sometimes it might seem that they're few and far between, but, you know, not... Uh, <laughs> 
sounds like I'm going to say, like, not all men, not all foster carers are monsters. You know, there, there are huge, uh, like, systematic problems um, within residential and out-of-home care to, to this day, and there certainly were in, you know, the, the, the 70s and 80s. Um, but there are always exceptions, and, and the same goes for kind of everything else. You know, you can, um, you can be living a profoundly difficult life but it's not ever without dignity or moments of joy or, uh, you know, points of peace. There are some wonderful, stable periods in Maggie's life. And I know I heard another interviewer talk about um, her time with Judith. And you said Judith is a favourite character, and she was for me as well. I wondered if you'd just tell us about the influence of Judith you know, things look good for a while there. What does Judith give Maggie? Yeah, so Maggie arrives um, to stay with Judith, a foster carer, um, at kind of this interesting point. I think she's 14, um, and she has um, bounced around through quite a horrific series of circumstances, children's homes, and it, it's quite unusual that, um, or it certainly was at the time, that a child of that age would be placed with a foster family. Typically, um, certainly in the, in the 80s, um, the older teenage, or teenagers and older would be, would be placed in resi units or children's homes. Um, and Judith is a kind of um, an older woman, she works as um, an aged care nurse. She's very, like, calls a spade a shovel and then hits you on the head with it. Um, <laughs> but she plays this role where she kind of takes in this, um, this teenager who is really um, at this kind of tipping or hinge point, right? She's, um, she's not attending school. She has, um, you know, she's relying on alcohol and drugs to kind of um, soften the edges of her day-to-day. Um, and Judith, I don't think, sees her as a project by any means, but Judith just has rules. Like, if you're going to live here, you have to go to school, and that's, <laughs> that's that. Um, and, you know, it takes a little while, but as Maggie begins to trust her, um, I think she, really, she genuinely wants to do right by Judith, and it's one of the first people who's really believed sounds very like American, but believed in her and has kind of, um, you know, Judith asks her what she wants to study when she finishes school because she sees that she is a bright and hardworking person or has greater potential. Um, and nobody has ever, has ever asked that of her. Nobody's ever kind of bothered to teach her to cook a meal or to, um, you know, nobody's ever taken her to, to get the birth control pill. And so there's this... Um, you know, relationship of trust that I think develops between them, where Judith, Judith um, sets expectations and Maggie doesn't expect that she will, you know, meet them and doesn't think anybody else expects her to meet them either. But, um, I don't know, it becomes... Um, over time, I think she kind of begins to feel the need to almost not prove herself, but to, to please Judith and, and to do right by her. Um, and so that, that is one of those points in the book where there's greater stability for Maggie and where the, when she's able to um, uh, attend school regularly, she's, she's eating regularly, she's um, able to develop, you know, friendships at school, um, all of those things that are really hard when you are, um, A, being bounced around from place to place or 
um, be experiencing, you know, really difficult things at home while while being told you need to go to school. Mm. Mm. And yet, and yet, it can't always last. <laughs> We're rooting for Maggie, and and you know, things keep happening. Anyway, we'll come back to more of that. Um, this might be the moment to talk about some of your research, which I know you both enjoyed doing and which enriches your books so much. Hannah, tell me what you read, where you went, what you did to, <laughs> to find out about Hannah's, your Hannah's life. Oh, it was one of those. I, I mean, I, I'm such a nerd and I love the research process for, like I said earlier, the things that it throws up. So I often start researching before I have a very solid sense of what it is I'm writing about. Now I'm sort of anticipating that the research and the things I read will throw up possibilities, whether that be for character or plot um, or their, you know, their intersection. Um, so I, because I'm not a historian, I don't have a background ground in, in history or archival history, I go about it probably in a very bad way. If there's any historians in the crowd, I would love some tips. But my approach is basically to read anything and everything that I think might be relevant, whether that be, you know, recipes, proverbs, very dry academic articles or statistical accounts, um, contemporary fiction, uh, contemporary non-fiction, historical fiction or poetry. I sort of just cast the widest net I can across the area that I think might pull up things that are relevant. And then as I start, to, I keep a notebook, and as I start to sort of get a strong sense of the things that are uh, attractive to me or seem to have life in them, you know, I, uh, I tend to sort of write that down, and then that leads to perhaps questions of greater specificity, and then my research process eventually narrows. But it's always surprising to me the things that will, I end up writing about because of what is thrown up by research. And in Devotion, there were two things that I discovered that really changed the shape of the whole narrative. One of those was an account of um, a ship's journey by a captain from Hamburg to, to Port Misery, as Port Adelaide was then colloquially known, for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, I, had, I had never, you know, I've never been on a three-masted ship. I've never <laughs> been between decks. I couldn't even imagine to, to think what that would even look like or feel like. And so I knew I had to find something to kind of sketch out at least, I don't know, a paragraph of details to summarise this journey of emigration. And I found this amazing journal. Initially, I didn't think it was amazing at all. It was the most dry captain's chronicle of his struggles with a chronometer during this journey. And I had, uh, I read it for the tiny details that he would occasionally throw in there in terms of like animal sightings. You know, when we passed this point, we saw whales. Occasionally, he would mention the immigrants he had on board. You know, they like to sing all the time. And so I thought, oh, look, I'll just read it. I'm used to reading quite dull things. And then I got about two-thirds of the way through and the captain sort of stops in his narration of this journey and he says, I have perhaps not been entirely truthful in my descriptions of the emigrants. <laughs> and as a novelist, you're just like, here's the juicy <laughs> stuff. And then he, there was basically an entire list of conflicts and arguments and, and petty fights which broke out amongst these, these emigrants, you know, to the point where people wanted bacon and they stole other people's rations and then someone was arguing over a cow and the, the congregation split up and then they hold separate services at either end of the ship and they try to outsing each other with hymns. You know, just all this incredible information that as I was reading it was thinking, oh my gosh, I have to include all of this in the book. And suddenly that journey becomes a, 
such an important time for, for my characters. It's actually about a third of the book, it isn't is. it? It is, yeah, yeah, and that was all just from that one resource. And there was, I won't go on, because uh, I'm so interested to hear about your research process as well. Please go on. No. <laughs> but there was one other thing, and for those of you who might have read the book, um, the sixth and seventh books of Moses was a grimoire which existed at the time. Setting out to write this book, I was thinking, you know, stepping away from my other two, there's going to be no folklore, no witchcraft. <laughs> and then, of course, I keep encountering this magical text which was there amongst these emigrating congregations and suddenly I had to put in a little bit of, you know, demon invocation because, it's, <laughs> because I had to be true to the historical record. This was a part of their where, lives. Where did you find those records? Oh, well, I, I heard, I started encountering a lot of stories of, of witchcraft and hexing. First, actually, a lot of them were colloquial and anecdotal from the areas, the towns, relatives, local histories. Um, and then I started, you know, peering into it a little bit more and discovered that a lot of the, the herbalism which occurred amongst the congregations or the accusations of witchcraft were linked to this magical text. And then I found a copy of this book and uh, I started translating it from the German. There's a copy actually in the South Australian Library. And uh, the seventh book was, you know, just cures for sleepwalking and warts and all the sort of these standard herbal treatments with a bit of, you know, symbolism and, and you know, sym sympathetic magic. But then the sixth book, was that was the one filled with, you know, demon invocation and, and, a, and a conversation with the devil. And I remember translating it at 11 o'clock at night once my kids were in bed thinking, oh, I don't, I don't feel comfortable writing down this written invocation of demon mm. assistance. <laughs> but, you know, the things you do in the name of research. Yeah. Just briefly, you, uh, well, it's not a brief subject, but um, this is your first book that is partly set in an Australian location. And, of course, you bring in the Paramount people who encountered these Lutherans seeking their freedom, but, of course, it takes away the Paramount's freedom and yeah. ownership of their land and so on. How did you research that part? Uh, look, I was aware from the outset that the sources that were available, and there were a lot of letters and journal entries which spoke to the nature of the relationship um, between the Prussians and the Paramount, particularly in the first year when the Prussians arrived at a place called Bacatilla, um, which is now you know, in, known as Handorf in the Adelaide Hills, which is uh, what I've sort of based so much of this on. I was so aware that they were all written from the perspective of the Prussians. Mm. So I tried to consider those sources with an eye to the prejudice and ideologies that also informed the way in which these relationships were narrated, even within those sources. Um, it was a, a big part of writing the book was my ensuring that I never tried to take up a perspective or a voice or appropriate something which culturally is not my space to take up, is not my voice to claim. Um, I did have, in the end, I had the, the... I'm so grateful to Elder Mandy Brown, who was a Paramount elder, who came on and read the book and read a lot of those scenes and the chats that we had, not only about the ways in which those relationships were portrayed and the way I wanted to portray particularly the hypocrisy of a persecuted people coming to a new place to persecute others, um, but also the, the way in which the spiritual world is, is portrayed in the book too. Mm. Yeah, so I'm indebted to her. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful for the ways in which our chats influenced the way that I was able to then go and negotiate those relationships. Mm. Thank you. Jennifer, your research, which I'm sure was at times rather intense, <laughs> what did you read? Um, <clears throat> so I read a lot of, um, yeah, I was 
sorry, as you were talking, I was like, this sounds like how I work. This is kind of a magpie yeah. or like bowerbird approach where I'm just, I, I don't quite know what I'm looking for, but I, I'm, I'm picking up things and hope, hoping I can weave them into a nest is of some kind later. Is this before you even really know what your story is? No, this, oh, I don't know. Well, some, sometimes they, they feed off each other as well. Like sometimes this, the story grows out of things that you find as well. Um, but I read a lot of... Um, uh, you know, I read coronial inquests, I read Senate inquiries, I read parliamentary reports into, you know, um, things like um, um, the forgotten Australians. Um, I read, uh, I mean, I even read things like I went to the State Library of Victoria and looked up old annual reports from children's homes like Arana and... Um, uh, Sorry, I'm, all I can think, I had to change the names for the book and now I can't remember what they're really called. Um, <laughs> and so I went and looked up these annual reports so I could see photos of children at, at this time period and, um, you know, kind of read the propaganda that the children's homes, if you like, was putting out. You know, we had this many, uh, we put on this Christmas parade and we had this donated by the Mums and Dads Foundation and whatever else. Um, so I read a lot of that stuff and then... Um, I don't know, I kind of, all, all, writing is, all writing is research to me, so um, I, I do a lot of Google Maps, I drive around a lot on Google Maps. Um, I think I, your I, mother joined you on some of your drives. On an, I, yeah, mum, mum joined me on an actual drive because the, <clears throat> the early part of the book is set in, um, in and around Dandenong, which is kind of, I don't know, for those of you who don't know, it's like a, a daggy south, outer southeastern suburb of Melbourne. And I actually know it really well because my, my grandparents used to live there, mum grew up there, and like, I learned to drive there. So, but but I, I, I came to know it in the 90s and, and when I was learning to, to kind of drive, um, whereas mum was a teenager when um, you know, some of the events in this book were theoretically taking place. And so I asked her to come to, to get in my, my Mazda 3 with me. And, um, we kind of drove around and actually she drove so that I could take notes and she would just, she also worked there in the 90s as a protective worker and so she, you know, she'd say, oh yeah, yeah, we used to put up kids in this, this pub or um, I don't know, this is, this is where I came, the, like the, the, the Southern Aurora Hotel um, where there was a fire that is featured in the book. Um, I mentioned that to her and we went to kind of look at the site and she told me that she once went there with a girlfriend who wanted to slash her ex's tyres. Um, so I kind of got all, like, that, that doesn't pop up anywhere, but it was kind of good to get these, um, you know, to see how things were. I, I know what Dandenong Market looks like now. I know what it looks like in the 90s, but um, in the 70s, it was a much more rural place. It was really like a, a semi-rural setting. It was really at the outskirts of the city, and you could smell cow shit, and you could smell, you know, there was a, a, a train that, that kind of went a little bit further towards, um, there was like a Heinz soup factory a little bit further out. Um, but a lot of it was just kind of paddocks and now it's all been developed and it's a little bit more, um, certainly it's more residential, but there's also more industrial development out there. Mm. And so it was really useful to, to have somebody, that, that's the kind of stuff that can be harder to find via the internet. Yeah. yeah. I wondered whether you based Maggie on any individual you read about or did you did you actually talk to people who'd been through this sort of life as well did you have first person accounts I did I I thought I would talk to more people but I think um, 
I was also really aware of potentially re-traumatizing people. And yeah. so it's one of those things where if somebody approaches you and wants to talk about it or, or you know, somebody says, oh, my, my friend would be really interested to speak to you, it's always like a great, you know, a great honor to be able to sit down with somebody who's had these first-hand experiences. But I didn't want to kind of, you know, put a call out to people to tell me about the worst moments of their lives because it just, it seemed needlessly, uh, yeah, re-traumatizing is the word. And so um, I did, I did, um, I, read, I read a lot of first-hand accounts um, that people had submitted to things like inquiries, but I also sat down and spoke with people. And um, I think, you know, there are organisations like um, the Care Leaders Network of Australia, or the Care Leaders Australia Network, CLAN, um, that do a lot of work with people who have survived and, you know, exited the, the, the so-called care system. Um, and for a lot of people, it's really important to be able to uh, it's really it's really good to be able to sit down and tell those stories, and for other people, um, you know, talking about it represents kind of excavating some of some of the worst years of their life, and I I, I totally understand that. So, it was um, yeah, a difficult like a challenging, um, I guess, from like an ethical perspective, it was an interesting thing to approach. Mm. Um, I might just tell the audience now that. Uh, we have microphones at either side at the front, and if you'd like to come up now, we'll take a few questions as much as we can. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Jennifer, whether looking at the system of out-of-home care over that long period, you think it's changed for the better at all? Has it changed much? Um, certain things like, you know, there, I guess the, the models of, of care, so there are fewer residential homes and we've kind of moved toward a, um, and they still exist of course, but foster care has kind of become more common since, since the you know, 60s and 70s. Um, I, I don't want to you know, be, a, be a doomsayer, but I think the system is, is certainly in Victoria, sorry, I can't, I can't speak as an authority um, for anywhere else, but I suspect the problems are pretty similar from, from what I've read. Um, Victoria is in a pretty bad place. Mm. Um, and there's a report as recently as uh, 2014, which feels recent. It's actually, it's almost 10 years ago, but um, there's a report that you can read online. It's called As a Good Parent Would. And um, I, w I would say, as, as a kind of as a, as a warning, that it's really it's really distressing, and um, and yeah, covers covers a lot of um, case studies basically, where they've interviewed you know young people. Um, but you know, there there are really dreadful stories that I, I shan't go into here. But there are also things like um, children's homes, and this is less than ten years ago. Children's homes where there are surveillance cameras in the children's bedrooms and uh, centralised electricity and light switches that are turned on and off as punishment. And I'm not making this up, it's in the report. And so I think, I don't know, I think we like to think that we just keep getting better, but we're not getting better fast enough. And we, we don't, as a society, care about young people enough. And they're the least visible um, young people in our society. And so, um, I don't know, I, I just, I was reading this stuff and I didn't even really feel surprised because, I, I, you know, I know what goes on, 
but um, it is like I can feel myself getting worked up as I'm talking about it because it it just it makes me so um, furious that you know this has been going on for decades and decades and decades, and we're just kind of changing the way things look or changing the way the structures operate. We're not funding these people better. We're not funding, you know, uh, children's services. We're not funding, there's no, you know, there's so little government funding for um, social work, and, and there is so little preventative measures for making sure that children can stay with, you know, parents or primary caregivers. A lot of the time, those caregivers just need help to do things better, um, and, and removing a child from a family you know, can cause irreparable damage and often make things a lot worse. And so, yeah, I'm sorry, that's, that's a real bummer to finish on, but um, everybody write to, your, write to your local MPs and, I don't know, that's, um, I don't know, there's, it's, it's difficult to feel like we can do anything kind of ourselves, but I think the best thing that we can do is keep talking about it because mm. what, what I've learned through, through writing this and talking to people about it is that um, people are so surprised. Like, people, nobody knows this is going on because nobody's talking about it in the media. And these children, these young people, do not have the, the ability, they don't have the, the mouthpiece that I have here, um, which is, you know, fairly, fairly modest. It's not like I'm, you know, I don't know, Lee Sales or something. But <laughs> it's, it's just, I think the best thing we can do is, is keep talking about it and keep, um, yeah, keep reminding one another that it's still going on and that, you know, it disproportionately affects um, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for instance, and it disproportionately affects, you know, there are, there are um, entirely, I don't know, separate challenges faced by, like, young queer people in out-of-home care. And so, you know, it, it's incredibly complex, but we need to do better, even if it's hard, I think. Mm, thank you. Let's take... <laughs> Let's take your question. Thank you. You are both so thoughtful and considered. Thank you. Um, I'm asking this question, uh, wanting your opinion both as writers and readers. How do you feel about the freedom of creative imagination versus the issue of representation, which I know is such a hot-button issue at the moment? You were just speaking about representation. Oh, look, I think, you know, representation is so important, but I don't think that it necessarily requires an absence of imagination. I think that imagination is its own form of representation. Um, yeah, I, you know, represent, I mean, this one thing that we haven't necessarily spoken about a lot, but is very, was very important to me in terms of writing this book was the fact that it's a, it's a queer love story. Yeah. Um, but specifically, I wanted to write a queer love story. Um, it was, a lot of it was in response to the, the 2017 plebiscite. Um, and I, it was not only the decision to change what was going to be a story of friendship to a story of love, but also a desire to create a book that did not centre around a narrative of shame or ostracism or exile or self-hatred, all of those things which can be so evident, particularly in historical fiction which concern queer, queer communities and queer people. Um, so for me, in order to address the silence that we have when we look to history for narratives of, of queer love stories that have nothing to do with shame or those things I mentioned, I, I had to call upon my imagination. I had to sort of do something creatively to create the representation that I like, but which does not necessarily always exist. Um, so, yeah, like I say, I don't, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You might have a different take on it. 
I'm not no, sure. No, I was actually, I think you, you answered much more eloquently than I could. I think, um, I think for this book as an example, it's all I can really talk about, I suppose. Um, it's important to me to represent a certain experience. It's not important, or sorry, I couldn't presume is what I should say. I couldn't presume to represent, um, you know, a... Uh, I think I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I can't. I can't phrase. It's a really hard question to to Just answer. I think. I think like. Um, I think writers do themselves and and the readers a disservice if they try to shoehorn in, you know, certain political issues mm. or. So it has to. For me, I think it has to come naturally. Yeah. And like, I don't consider myself an issues-based or political writer. I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same. No, it's never front and center. I think you, they. I think they emerge indirectly, and I think a lot of the time, readers also contribute to the emergence of those things within. Precisely. A book yeah. yeah, and I, I think, um, I think I can always tell as a as a reader, if if somebody's sort of you know, trying to, uh, trying to make sure that they have enough diversity in their book. And it's really cringeworthy because yeah. it's, not, it, it's not authentic and you can tell that they've probably never spoken to, you know, I don't know, a young trans person or um, that, you know, they, they live in a, a you know, predominantly white community, have never, have never really uh, had much to do outside of it. But, you know, they think that their publisher or someone, you know, is going to tell them that you need to, mm. you need to put a person of colour in, in this book. <laughs> and you can tell as a reader, like, I mean, we've all got bullshit radars and it feels tokenistic and mm. it, feels, um, it feels really awful, I think, to me. And I'm not, I'm not really sure if that answers the question, but I think it, um, representation is really important. Own, uh, stories being told by the people who have experienced those things is really important. Own voices, narratives are really important. I don't think that we can and should just write about our own narrow little lived experience. I don't think that serves anybody, but I do think that, um, that we need to approach things like representation with a lot of empathy and a lot of research and a lot of thought. Yeah, yeah. I let's, think research is key. Let's but, yeah. squeeze in one more question. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Hannah and Jennifer. What an inspiring and beautiful uh, discussion. And I just want to say it's wonderful to see Australian female writers doing really well. So thank you. Um, my main question was to Jennifer, actually. So I'm in a book club. Um, <laughs> I'm sure everyone knows what that is. Um, and we read Bodies of Light. And um, you've naturally, you've, you've talked about um, a lot of the content quite traumatic and can be quite triggering for a lot of people. Um, and so about half the book club couldn't actually finish the book because of the nature of some of the, I won't give it all away, but some of the, the, you know, the content that's in there. And I suppose when we were talking about what to read, um, the synopsis and the blurb didn't give a lot away, so we, we kind of came to it um, being really surprised, I guess, mm. and a little bit distressed about the content. So where's the balance, I suppose, in terms of writing um, that synopsis or um, too much information and giving sort of the detail away of what the content of the book is actually about and also giving people enough to sort of not feel so triggered when they, they go through um, an experience of reading your... By the way, fantastic. I finished it. It's, it's an incredible <laughs> read. Um, it was both easy and difficult, if that makes sense. Your writing is incredible, but it was also, yeah, heavy to read, obviously. So. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for, <laughs> for reading it and for choosing it for Book Club. Um, yeah, it's not... It, there's stuff in there that would be uh, incredibly triggering for some people and, and just really difficult to read for most people, I would think. Um, I feel like 
what you're asking is maybe to do with like content warnings or, or similar similar uh, devices. I, don't, I mean, I have complex feelings about content warnings for, for books specifically. I think they exist for a reason. And like when I set readings for students, for instance, I, I, I will give a content warning in, in kind of broad brush strokes because the last thing I want to do is ambush a, ambush a student in, in, a, in a tute or whatever. But I, I think, um, I think, I mean, I'm in the very fortunate position. I know this isn't true for all writers, but my, my editor writes my blurbs because I think she knows that I'm just going to be like, oh, don't read it. It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> crap. Um, so she writes my blurbs for me um, and always has. And um, I, we, did, we did kind of talk about it. Um, I mean, it's one of the big, I guess, spoilers that we've, we've talked about avoiding is, is in, on the back of the book. But there are certainly other things. I think, I think for me what it comes down to is, um, you know, I hope that when people are pressing this into the hands of other people or booksellers are selling it, um, they, they might kind of say, look, do some research on this before you read it, maybe read a couple of reviews. Um, I think... Uh, anybody who has any kind of familiarity with the, with the system might have an idea of what they're in for, but a lot of a lot of us don't have any have any kind of exposure or um, or expectations of what this this kind of experience might be. And so, I, the, you know, the last thing I would ever want to do is is um, unnecessarily uh, damage or trigger somebody. Um, but I think that's that's kind of been my my advice to people has been, you know, if you're not sure, um, do some research. And also, if you're not sure, don't, don't read it, you know, like exercise caution. There are, there are um, gentler narratives out there and there are other ways to think about this stuff outside of, um, you know, a very intense work of fiction as well. Mm. Thank you. I'm afraid we're going to have to end there, um, but you are invited to join Jennifer and Hannah in the book signing room, which is very close to here. Talk to them more, get your book signed, and I do encourage you to read both books because they're, they dig deep, but they also soar, and they're very beautiful pieces of writing and character study. And I thank you both for talking to us thank so beautifully. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.